Hello and welcome to another episode of the Respecting Your Elders podcast. Today my guest from Louisville, Kentucky is none other than a longtime friend of mine, Terry Kelly. Hey, how you doing, Mike? I appreciate you asking me uh, to come out. A uh, little dig on the Respect Your Elders thing, but uh, hey, you get old gracefully. I think that's one of my uh, fears is getting older. I don't know if it's a mortality thing or I don't know if it's just I'm not ready to leave this world yet or like this morbid reflection of every year or every day that I survive. Like I'm one day closer to not being here anymore, but whatever, you know, I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying uh, what I can offer. Just take it how it goes, man. It's like fine wine. You know what I mean? Improves with age. Um, well, it wasn't meant to be a dig, um, you know, and there is respect in there. But though I am, sometimes I am concerned if it's going to prohibit me from having certain guests on the show. You know, um, I think if there's people that I'm, I'm worried are going to be self-conscious about their age, I might not tell them what the podcast is called, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you ain't got to worry about that with me. I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that one. Because even though you know my driver's license might say one thing, I consider myself young at heart. So, you know, young in spirit, young and always ready to to take on the next challenge and whatever the next chapter of life brings me. So, try to keep things exciting. Always have been that way. So, definitely not a dig to me. You're good, bro. I think that's a good way to be. Um, you know. The whole mortality thing, I feel like I try to, I've been trying to um, seize the day. Now with the past couple months of everything, uh, I haven't been been that positive uh, as normal. Like I'm acting like, oh, I, I try to seize the day. I'm just saying like sometimes for me on the topic of mortality, it's just been when I've been remembering that I'm going to die and then I feel like it, it makes me uh, want to live in the moment more. Be grateful. Now, sometimes that is definitely not always the case, but on a, on a good day, I've I've been thinking about that more than than normal recently. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. You know, I, some of it comes from my upbringing, my background. I grew up in Virginia as well, Southern rural Virginia. Okay. And for a long time, I was a fifth generation grandchild. So. You know, I vividly remember my great great grandmother, and she died when she was 111 years old. And wow! To put things in perspective, I was 11; she was 111. Uh, she was born in 1876. I was born in 1970. Yeah. And so, her parents were slaves. So if you really think about that and you really think about the impact of that statement of what I just said, my great-great-grandmother would tell me stories about her parents who were slaves. And I don't think a lot of people are able to have that kind of experience or to be able to do that. And I just thought it was normal. I thought it was normal that my grandmother had a grandmother, you know, um, and, and there's a, there's a picture of me when I was a kid, I was probably about three or four years old. 
you know, then my dad, then my grandmother, then my great grandfather, and then my great great grandmother. And, uh, you know, to kind of see that longevity you know, go on in life, it's like, all right, if Grandma Bell, that's her name, if she lived to be in her hundreds, I mean, I got five or six more decades left, you know, so. I might could fart around for another decade and, and, and then maybe buckle down or maybe I, I think this is my buckle down decade now, now that we've gotten to the 2020. So, um, but yeah, you know, when I look at history and I look at mortality within my own family, I can see there is some longevity that's there. And I would hope that it would be the same thing for me. Um, on top of the historical reference, uh, as far as that, because, you know, when I tell people that I'm a fifth generation child and my great, great grandmother was 111, a lot of people had the same reaction as you. Oh, wow. And to say, you know, to put in perspective where her lifetime was, where she was born in a cabin that didn't have electricity and had dirt floors. And like she's seen the invention of flight. She's seen the invention of electricity. She's seen the invention of cars, telephone, and, and all that stuff. But my experience with all that was, eh, that's that's normal. That's what everybody's family goes through. Until I got older, and then I realized, well, it's not uh, that. And, you know, it really makes me, I wish I would have had more appreciation. But what is a 10-year-old have, you know, appreciate, then I think the most thing that I appreciated back then was getting a new G.I. Joe or Transformers. So, <laughs> it's 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 uh, it's something to be appreciative of. I think it's something that kind of makes me who I am today, uh, because I was able to draw some of those old experiences and customs and those kind of things that were instilled in me younger. And now me being a father trying to instill those things into my daughters, um, the things that I've learned to try to pass it down um, because that's something that they probably will likely won't see in their lifetime. Um, Maybe they'll be lucky to have, maybe I'll end up being the great, great grandfather one day, who knows? Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's kind of my take on, on on life and lifespan, and that's what I kind of compare it to. Not really pay attention to the numbers or the statistics and all that stuff because, I mean, if if we go by the statistics and and, and what you read, uh, I should already be dead or like knocking on death's door right now. Uh, but it's all about where you live, how you live, how you enjoy life, I think. Um, so, yeah. Well, that definitely bodes well for your, that you have the same DNA as your great-great-grandmother as far as longevity is concerned. Um, so that's good news. Um, that's that's incredible um, that your uh, great-great-grandmother's mother was a slave? Mm-hmm. Did, um, yeah. and, and, grandf- and father? Um do you remember, I'm sure you do, any of the stories that your great-great-grandmother told? So she she really didn't go through, per se, the slavery part. 
it was like like I know the family that used to own us. You know what I mean? Their descendants. Yeah, their descendants. They still frequent in the area and this is and I know you're a Virginia boy too. This is the south central portion of Virginia, Lynchburg, Roanoke, kind of that area mm-hmm. of, of Virginia. And so I know the family that used to own us. And there is a, a section of the county that when, when the, the slaves were emancipated, the family actually allotted a portion of their land to the freed slaves and like, okay, you guys are free. Um, we don't have you in indentured service, but would you still be willing to work with us? And, and, and this is a story for a lot of um, freed slaves back then is they didn't know what, to, what else to do. And so the only skill that they had was farming. So of course, okay, most of the freed slaves end up turning into sharecroppers. And that's what my family did. So they turned into sharecroppers. They farmed tobacco, which is, you know, cash crop in Virginia. And um, they continued to do that. And even till this day, right now, that land that was allotted to them is still in the family. There's a about a two-mile stretch that's all my family's land on both sides of the road in, uh, in Virginia that was given to them by their slave owner families after they were emancipated because it was, I, I, I would assume that it was more of a payment. Maybe it was a peace offering. I don't know. Obviously I wasn't around in 1865, 1863. Um, but that's one of the things that she told me that, that I remember um, about the effects of her parents' slavery and, you know, the house that she was born in. Um, I remember seeing that house when I was eight or nine years old, mm. old broken down kind of shack uh, house. And it got, you know, it finally fell through and they finally raised the house and tore it down, flattened the land. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really, you know, just me sitting here talking about it right now. It's like, man, I'm really special. That's <laughs> you know? so what I'm, I'm thinking about. But again, it was something that was normal to me and my family kind of treated it as just a nonchalant kind of thing. Like this is life. This is a fact. This is the fact of your life. Uh, this is where you come from. Uh, these are the kind of roots that were instilled in us, which was passed down to your father, which he's trying to pass down to you, which now here we are in 2020. I'm trying to pass those down to my children, albeit now I live in Kentucky. Uh, and during the summers, we go back to Virginia, and I tell stories, and I, you know, these similar stories that I'm telling you, I tell them, and they're like, "Oh, cool," and then they'll go back to playing Roblox or Fortnite or whatever you know that's going on. That's that's where kids are now. So. Not just kids. When after the shutdown happened, I started playing Fortnite on my phone. That thing is like a drug. You know, I haven't gotten into Fortnite. Um, I I have tuned up the PlayStation Four a little bit more. Um, I actually 
um, been playing the Final Fantasy VII remake uh, because I remember <clears throat> what was it like ninety seven, ninety eight? Yeah, I remember playing in like ninety three, ninety four yeah. on the computer. Yeah, I playing Final Fantasy from the beginning, and so when Final Fantasy seven came, came out, then in my opinion, I think it's definitely a top five greatest video game of all time. Uh, so when they remade it, it was right when the shutdown happened. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to be in the house, I got a PlayStation. I'm going to play. So I ended up playing it and still playing it. And I got all the way to the end and I didn't like the way my character was built. So now I've started it over again. Now that I have all the secrets and, you know, read all the websites and the YouTube secrets and the cheats and all that. So now I'm going and getting super pumped up for that last fight that I'm, I'm going to be pretty, I'm going to be pretty beefed up by the time I get there. That's super fun. Uh, my, my brother and I just found out that you can play Fortnite cross platform so he can play on his game system and I can play on my phone. So that should be fun. My brother lives in like he, I think he lives around McLean. That's where he grew up, McLean, Virginia. And then, and then he plays some soccer game on his game system where you're you're in cars and you're playing soccer, but you're all in cars. Oh, wow. That sounded kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, and and you said you looked up all the all the things for Final Fantasy. When I was a kid, you just had like Nintendo Power magazine, or occasionally you would have. I remember playing X Men uh, on mm-hmm. Sega, and I was with my sister in. Ohio and uh, I had Nightcrawler and I couldn't climb out of this one hole, you know? So she calls this 900 number asking for advice on X-Men from some gamers and then and the gamer ended up telling her well maybe your brother's game playing uh, abilities just aren't uh, advanced enough to get him out of this hole and she's like my brother's game playing abilities are just fine. And then I ended up jumping out of the hole, and she's like, oh, never mind, bye. Wow. Yeah, I definitely remember those days. I remember getting the gaming magazines, and I think they even had a subscription to gaming magazines mm-hmm. back in the day. So, um, yeah, it's just technology and just having all this stuff at your fingertips. You know, I look at because I've, I have a four-month-old, and I also have a 10-year-old. So definitely age difference um, when it comes to the children. And so when I'm looking at my 10-year-old, and she'll ask a question, and if I don't have an answer to it, she'll automatically Google it. Like, Google. And so I would tell her one day, I was like, if I would have had Google when I was your age, it would have prevented so many fights. Mm. Because... There was no way to verify a lot of that information unless you had three or four or five people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened or no. Or there's always that one guy in the group that's, you know, you know he's a smart guy, so you can pretty much rely on whatever he has to say and think that it's true. But now everything is just at, at, at your fingertips. And, you know, you look at information with gaming and you look at – uh, the cheat codes and, and all that stuff. But then when you cross platforms and you look at music and I had this conversation the other day <clears throat> with 
October, I believe it's October 18, 1993. Okay. Two albums came out that same day. Enter the 36 Chambers by Wu-Tang. And Snoop Dogg? No. Midnight Marauders by Tribe Called Quest. Mm. Both albums came out on the same day. And I remember going to the record store, buying both of those albums. And CDs were like 17 bucks back then, you know? And so I remember giving the guy two $20 bills and buying both of those CDs because you were waiting for it to come out. Because again, you had the Word Up magazine, you had the Source magazines, you had the Vibe and, you know, some of those magazines. And so you knew, hey, these albums are coming out. And I loved Tribe Called Quest. And Wu-Tang was up and coming, but you anticipated the album. And you look at the way that music comes out now, and it's like three weeks later, you'd be like, hey, did you hear Eminem came out with a new album? Like, no. And you go and you look at Apple Music, you're like, well, I'd be damned. It was three, three, uh, three weeks ago he came out with a new album. And, it, and it, isn't, it isn't publicized, but stuff just comes out so fast now that I... It's hard to appreciate music and see if it's going to transcend the test of time because a different albums, you know, you got five, six, seven albums coming out every week and it's like, okay, this is good. And then next week it's something completely different. And I forgot about what I was rocking the week before or or the week before that or the week before that. So um, yeah, definitely the digital age when it, comes to music is I I guess if I was an aspiring artist, it would be very beneficial because I could get my voice out there to millions of people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, upload to SoundCloud or hopefully get on Spotify or, or Apple Music or whatever, but you know, you just imagine how hard it was back in the day to get the right person to listen to your demo tape, to convince you to come into the studio and get with the right producer and go through multiple takes in order to get the right sound in order to make a Snoop Dogg album. Mm-hmm. You know, all those classic albums that from our generation, you know, the nineties and, and stuff like that. So um. Yeah, the world's an ever-evolving, changing place. I think I was watching that hip-hop documentary show on Netflix, and I think, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think, I can't remember now, but I want to say it was, no, I'm going to get it wrong. I, it wasn't Curtis Blow. It wasn't Curtis Blow, but it was, it wasn't Curtis Blow, but it was someone. And the way they they figured out who was the hottest DJ in New York City, or they already knew, but they figured out where he hung out. And they paid people to come. They got all their friends. I don't know if they paid people. They got all the people they knew to come to the bar, and he paid the DJ to play his record right when that DJ, radio DJ, came in to get a drink. And so as soon as that DJ walked in, as soon as the radio DJ walked in, the club DJ put on the record, the crowd went wild, and then the radio... Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. and said, who is this? And that was, I guess, the sort of lengths you had to go to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, back in, back in the day in New York City, and of course I wasn't there, but I've heard from many people and watched documentaries such as yourself. But, you know, back in the day, there were two ways that you could get your album played. Um, one is kind of like what you're talking about, finding the right person, knowing the right person to get it on the radio. But the other one is to have your music played at a block party. And, you know, if you've been to New York City, you go to the Bronx or Queens or something this time of year, they had these gigantic block parties. And so that's where the DJs got famous. And the DJs were the superstars. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that were playing the music. So you get the DJ to play your music and if we really kind of look back at early hip hop and early rap days, it was always the DJ that was first. You know, a lot of people, when they hear Eric B and Rakim, they think Eric B is the rapper. No, Eric B is the DJ you know, or DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. You know, so the DJ was the one that got the notoriety before the rapper or the MC did because they were the one that controlled the beats. And really in a sense, they were the one that did all the hard work because mm-hmm. they, they had to find the sample. They had to put it on the wax. They had to kind of loop it and spin it and mix it and scratch it and make it sound good. And once it sounded good, all this other guy's doing is just coming in and making up rhymes based on whatever the beats playing. But the DJ's the one that has to do all the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course that morphs into, what we see today with the super producers, the, you know, the, the Dr. Dre's, the Kanye West, the Timbaland, Pharrell. Pharrell. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just looking on Facebook. There was a, a poll between Timbaland and Pharrell. And I think when I voted, it was 60% Timbaland and 40% Pharrell as far as people who thought was better. Oh, I have to disagree. Yeah, Pharrell's definitely... People don't know, I think. Like, I just learned watching that documentary that Pharrell was responsible for Rump Shaker by Rex and Effect. Yeah. When he was, like, maybe le- under 20 years old. I was that, that blew my mind. That's, like, one of my favorite songs of all time. He was still in hospital. He was still in hospital. Virginia Beach. Beach, yeah. And uh, Teddy Riley had set up a uh, studio then. And, you know, Pharrell was around and kind of in the scene and, and actually wrote that. And when you go and, and when I seen the same thing, too, and I was just like, oh, man, I remember that. Rap. You know, check, baby, check, baby, one, two, three, four. And I went back and I listened to it and I listened to Teddy Riley's verse. And when I listened to it, knowing that you can hear Pharrell all in it mm. because it's the same, it's the same thing. If you ever get a chance, um, there's a podcast called Dissect. Okay. And uh, this uh, gentleman by the name of Cole Kushner, he takes a artist and he takes an album. I think the first season he did Kendrick Lamar. Uh, the second season he did Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which in my opinion, is probably the greatest hip-hop album after 2000. I, I, I would 
adamantly argue anybody on that point. Mm -hmm. But he takes that and he breaks it down to, you know, the harmonies, the chords, uh, the repetitions. He goes into the samples. He goes into the lyrics and what the lyrics mean and all that. And, and I've, I've very, uh, I travel a lot through my work. I travel a lot personally. Obviously, you know that because we've met several times, you know, in various places. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Los Angeles, for one. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so when I'm traveling and I'm driving, uh, I don't really listen to music when I drive. Um, it kind of puts me to sleep, you know, because because here's because here's what happens. I'll I'll put it on some Pandora station or I'll put it on some Apple Music station and I find myself skipping. A lot of stuff. It's like, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like that. Okay. I like that song, but I hear it all the time. I want to hear something new, blah, 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 blah. And so I just got tired of listening to music because I would eventually just go back to the old stuff and go back to the kind of the era that, that we were talking about. Um, whether it's because I listen to a, a, a wide array of music, but it's all around the same time period. You know? mm -hmm. Me too. 90s mm -hmm. maybe early 2000s but but it's still like it's around that time period and i guess you know being an elder uh that's 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 our time period i guess for my parents it would be the 60s and 70s and stuff like that so i've gotten into podcasts and so i listen to podcasts and i listen to you know people talk things like what we're doing now um but i stumbled upon this dissect podcast and it was interesting because i kind of got the best of both worlds so I got the podcast feature, but I got the music feature as well. Mm, yeah. Now I can kind of listen to a little bit of rhythm. I can listen to some of the songs, but then I could hear the harmonic breakdowns and I can hear the chords and the keys. And, and he really, really goes into depth with that. And I will say this much after listening to his podcast, when I go back and listen to that song again after it, it sounds totally different and and i can hear the explanation with the music based on listening to that so it's a it's a highly recommended uh thing if you want to kind of get the most best of both worlds uh, musically that's really cool um speaking of going back and listening first of all um so when i introduced you i said you were from louisville now i'm wondering i know that in louisville how do people say the name of that town? <laughs> okay. So there's six different ways to pronounce Louisville. Okay. So one is probably the most common pronunciation that you say Louisville. And if you want to spell it out, L-O-U-E-V-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, Louisville. There are some other people that say Louisville. They still have the double L on the end, but Louisville. Then there's people that say, and they enunciate the O, so they say Louisville. And then there's some people that pronunciate, and then it's almost spelled like a e y, like um, L O O E Y, Louisville. And then you get some of the natives with a little country twang in it. So you'll get 
Louisville, which is kind of the way that I say it. So there's some U's in there, and you take a couple of the vowels out, so Louisville. And then when you really get people who are from out in the holler, out in the sticks, they pronounce it Louisville. Mm. So they kind of put a W in there somewhere. Wow. Uh, so, so, so yeah, nobody, there's not, there's not a right way to pronounce it, but there's definitely a wrong way. And that would be, the wrong way would be Louisville? That's how you know you're an outsider? Yeah, really, honestly. So you take, you take like St. Louis, drop the Saint off, you got Louis. So naturally, if somebody was kind of learning English, looking at the English structure of the word, okay, that's St. Louis, so this should be Louisville. So that is a dead That's end. really wrong. Yeah, you're, you're, you're wrong. So if you kind of look at the American pronunciation of it, we take a state like Louisiana, okay? You take Louisiana, 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 Louisville, which is kind of like how you say it. And so you're more along the path, but us natives or most natives, um, we try to run it all in one sentence. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, because growing up, like I said, I always said Oregon. And then I found out a long time later that they say Oregon. And then I moved to New York City and I learned that it's not Houston Street, it's Houston Street. And then and then I went to Long Island and I said, oh, I was in Long Island. And someone said, no, you're on Long Island. So there's all these little things like that. And in Los Angeles, there's like uh, La Cienega. People say La Cienega. Or you don't, like people call it Los Feliz, which is like the Los is Spanish, but the Feliz, they say with an American accent. It's like very, you have to be from there to learn all these things. Um, but I, I didn't know, because I know that people say, I'll, I might say it wrong, but people say Louisville, like you said, like one, one Louisville, but I didn't know, like, just because I know that I'm not from there. Am I like being a poser to say it like that? You know what I'm saying? It's so it is something that because, so I moved here from Virginia in 2003. Okay. And I very, very much so I had still had my Virginia accent. I still have pe- people from here say that I still have a Virginia accent, but when I go back home to Virginia, they're like, no, you have a little accent. So, okay, whatever. But when I first moved here, I would say Louisville as well. And I would definitely enunciate that if I were to spell it out, L-O-O-E-Y-V-I-L-L-E. But the natives and the people around here, as I heard it more, and heard it more. And here's here, here's the crazy thing about all this too. Depending on which part of the city that you're in, people pronounce it different as well. Mm-hmm. So the part of the city that I'm that I frequented or kind of settled, uh, it was a Louisville. So if I were to spell that out, it'll be L-U-H-V-U-L. Louisville. You know, but the part of the city where I live at now it's more of a loo uh so they it's it's 
it's strange. It's yeah. wild. I feel hey. sorry for anyone that moves to America and tries to learn English. Oh my god! Oh my god! I was, you know, it's bad enough seeing people who English is their first language struggle with English. I in in my profession, I work for a, a food and beverage manufacturer, and their headquarters is is in Italy. So I'm frequent in, in it with Italians and Swedes and Germans all the time. Several times a day, I'm on. Uh, we have blue jeans, but Zooms and same thing. And so we have these meetings, and sometimes when I talk, some of my slang comes out, um, especially if I get excited about something or if I'm if I'm presenting. And I'll throw like a slang word in there and it will just mess them all up. It'd be like, hold, 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 hold on. Get it. What, is, what do you mean by, you know, the, and I can't remember it. One got me the other day. I can't remember exactly what I said, but I threw in a slang word and they had no clue what it meant uh, because their, their complaint to us, which is rightly so, because I know a little bit of Spanish, Espanol, mm-hmm. speak it or whatever. But if somebody is speaking fluent Spanish to me, they are fast. And I'm just like, I don't know. I'm trying to pick up like every third word. And then, okay, this is probably what they're saying. And that's the same way that it is for some of the Europeans. Now, the difference with the Europeans and say somebody from China or Japan or an Asian country is, is that English is taught pretty much just a, mandatory uh, pretty much taught as a mandatory uh, second language Mm -hmm. that is the international business language you know so you have somebody that will speak Dutch somebody that will speak Danish somebody that will speak Finnish somebody that will speak German but they all communicate in English because that's what it is so Mm -hmm. um, so. but uh, you know what they say flavor is the spice of life I think it's kind of cool that like people sound different in New Orleans in Texas, in different parts of Texas, New York City, Boston, Minnesota, San Diego. I think it's pretty cool. Now, backtracking again, you said you um, still go to visit that land in Virginia. Are there still crops on that land? Oh, yeah. What kind? What kind? Tobacco. Tobacco, still? Yes, tobacco. That is the cash crop, and that is... Tobacco is an art, and it's something that Virginia takes pride in. And especially, you'll see it on some cigarettes, and you'll see it on some things that you'll see where it will say that it's Virginia cured. And what that basically means is that in Virginia, they cured our tobacco different than. North Carolina, Kentucky, or some other places. And, and, and for the most part, what it is, is, is that in Virginia, when you go out and you pick tobacco, August, September, which if you've never picked tobacco before, I do not recommend it. Don't do it. It's backbreaking labor. Mm. It, it, it hurts. Um, but when you go through this field, you actually snap off each tobacco and so you snap off each tobacco leaf and you kind of carry it under your arm. And once you get a bundle, you throw the bundle. This guy's following with the tractor. You do. And so you take it to this uh, hanging house 
a barn, or some sort, of, sort of say, and there are these big racks that you tie the leaves on and you hang the leaves upside down. <clears throat> so what happens is, is that the tobacco resin uh, kind of falls to the end of the leaf and so that leaf is more potent with the nicotine and with the tobacco and the flavor um, as it dries up. So it's hanging in this barn, it's hot, and it dries out. <clears throat> as opposed to Kentucky or North Carolina or other places, they just go out there with a the machete and they just whack the whole stalk. And so they take the whole stalk and they kind of do the same thing with the stalk as well and not the individual leaves. So. Yeah, the, the the neck of the woods where I'm from, you know, there's a lot of tobacco uh, warehouses, and, um, tobacco factories. Not as much anymore, but I remember the the R.J. Reynolds, the Philip Morris's, the Laura Lards, and some of these bigger tobacco companies and just have rows and rows and rows of tobacco warehouses where they would hold tobacco. And so you would get the Marlboros and, you know, the name brand cigarettes. But the cheap cigarettes are usually after they take all the tobacco off of the pallets and sell them. There's tobacco residue and tobacco leaves that have fell on the floor. Well, that's where you get the cheap cigarettes from. <laughs> What's left after that. So, um, but yeah, tobacco has been in my family, both, both sides of my family. I, I, we were talking about primarily my dad's side of the family, but my mom's side of the family um, sharecropped for a long time mm. as well. Mm -hmm. that, so, yeah. I know people smoke a lot less now, but is business still okay? No, no. Um, it's definitely a lost art. Uh, it's definitely... I remember being younger going to my grandmother's house or going out in the country and there were tobacco fields everywhere. And you go out there, say this time of year, and you're already seeing plants that were, they seemed big to me, but they were probably about a foot or two tall. Um, if I were to go to Virginia right now, there were, there, there's less land that's tilled um, and the plants are smaller, which means that they plant them later. So they don't get as mature because they're not selling as much. Uh, some of those tobacco warehouses have shut down. Some of those tobacco companies have shut down. You know, you can talk about the the um, uh, lawsuits, the billion dollar lawsuits and stuff that were going around with the tobacco company. The the ca campaign because smoking is bad and kids are listening. Smoking is bad. Don't don't smoke. Um, and all that. And it's just uh, technology. You know, people got more efficient with tobacco farming. So I don't need a whole crew of migrant workers when I could have two or three and be able to process the, these leaves that I'm not growing as much of. So, yeah, the, the, the industry as a whole and, and, and that part, tobacco and textile were king so there were a lot of furniture factories there were a lot of um, woven fabric you know factories making towels and stuff like that and so the city that i grew up in mainly you know, i consider my hometown in danville of uh, virginia 
had a very large textile mill that employed like 23% of the city or something. Like it was a lot. And so when I went to school, when I went to high school, um, my high school had almost 2,200 kids. You know, at, at that time, it was like the fifth or sixth largest high school in the state of Virginia. And it was very, and to be out in the middle of nowhere, big high school, you know, all that. Um, now that high school has about 1,200 kids. And I believe the last census, uh, the population of the city, when that textile mill closed, dropped by 13 to 15,000 people, you know, because the industry just, you know, the tobacco and the textile, when it broke down, people just moved and there's just not any opportunity. And I was kind of one of the, not that I worked in, in the textile or tobacco, but just job opportunity was just not there, which is one of the reasons why I ended up moving to Louisville um, was because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a lot of opportunities uh, to have earn a meaningful, decent wage without being a professional. You know, if I wasn't, I don't have a medical degree. I don't have a law degree. Okay. I'm not a police officer, not a firefighter. Yeah. Okay. So what else is there left for me to do? Work in a restaurant somewhere, maybe work in a retail clothing store or something like that. Um, It's just personally not what I wanted uh, to do. Uh, So I, decided to move to Louisville. <laughs> now, I wish I had never smoked cigarettes, and I hope I don't die of lung cancer. I don't smoke anymore, but I, I saw this. I was just watching a movie before we got on here, and uh, everyone's smoking in the movie, and I just thought to myself, man, I wish smoking wasn't bad for you. Yeah. I would love to have a cigarette right now. Um, I'm going to show my age on this one. So... I remember when the smoking age was 16. Mm. I was almost sick. I think I was 14, maybe 15 when they bumped it from 16 to 18. Cause I remember being so mad that I couldn't get cigarettes anymore. And I vividly remember being able to go to the store and say, yeah, my mom sent me here to buy a pack of cigarettes give a couple bucks. They sell you packs of cigarettes. You go around your day. We'd go around a quarter. We'd smoke them. Um, obviously you couldn't get away with that now, but uh, the, the first few packs of cigarettes that I bought, I actually bought out of the vending machine, you know, where you pull the tab. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was like a dollar 50, a dollar 75 or something like that. Um, and at my high school, we had a senior lounge in the school down in the basement. And in the senior lounge, if you were, before it turned to 18, if you were 16 or older and a senior, you could smoke down there. So think about this. You got high school kids in school, down in the basement, huddled up in this lounge, smoking. And then you had a teacher's lounge right next to it where they were smoking. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a PC disaster today if that happened. You could imagine the Facebook post off of that. These teachers are smoking and then smoking around my kids. And my, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, Why does it sound so fun to me? I 
so cool. I mean, it was intriguing to me, mainly because it means that I didn't have to go out to my friend's car and sneak a smoke um, in school. So I kind of aspired to be a senior. Then, of course, by the time I was a senior, they had abolished it and, and all that. But kind of going back to the tobacco thing and tying it in with my great-grandmother, she used to do snuff. You know what snuff is? It, not the dip. So it's chew, kind of, like chew. Yeah, well, it's kind of a dip. It's kind of a dip. Uh, it's a it, it, it's concentrated tobacco, mm-hmm. very concentrated tobacco powder that folks would either put in their lip, mm-hmm. and some people, including my great great grandmother, used to sniff it. Mm. Gave him the tobacco rush. Who knew? You know, I didn't know then, but I knew now. It's just like, and and she was put it to you this way. I've always remembered my great great grandmother being over a hundred. I, I I cannot remember her being like them saying you know, I was alive. Obviously, well, no, actually, I wasn't because she, I think she was already a hundred by the time I was born. Uh, so she's over a hundred and she's doing snuff. She's dipping snuff, doing it It's like and still kicking. Wow. Yeah, I guess that shows how much genes have to do with uh, yeah, yeah it, our mortality. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, I think more people are living over 100 now, but that's just because of the medical advances. And, uh, you know, you got 80-year-old guys that are bench pressing 300 pounds and got 90 year olds running marathons and all that stuff so i i i think that the longevity now is due to fitness and medical advances hopefully that's us when we're 80 and 90 i hope so too i gotta start running first before i get fit i play golf that's Mm -hmm. that's my that's my my natural exercise it used to be basketball um I can't do it anymore. My knees won't take it. My back won't take it. I'm, I'm just not as good as I used to be, you know, coming with age. But I, I picked up golf after I decided to quit playing basketball. And I wish I would have picked it up earlier um, because now I love it because it does give me an activity to do. I sweat. I have my step, you know, on my watch. So every time I play golf, I take like 7,000 steps. So I'm getting my steps in, I'm working my muscles. I'm usually pretty sore after I play because, you know, there's a lot of twisting and turning and moving and all that stuff too. So that's, that's, that's my physical activity exercise. Does it, do you get upset like I do when you hit a bad shot? All the time. All the time. I cuss, I throw my clubs, um, I kick the car. Yeah. All that, all that stuff. I play about once a year. I played with my dad last week, social distancing and safety and everything over in Front Royal, Virginia. And I like never play. So I go into it, no expectations. I'm like, I'm just going to have fun, whatever. It's just hanging with my dad. And then, you know, I started to hit a couple good shots. And I'm like, you know what? I could be good at this. Like, maybe I'm kind of a natural athlete, you know, and this is fun, you know. And I texted my fiance, maybe I want golf clubs for my birthday. And then, you know, the next shot I, I hit off into the trees and I think I'm going to get a birdie and I, you know, I'm, I'm terribly putting and I've just, you know, 
I don't want my dad to talk to me. I don't want him to give me advice. I don't want to play the next hole. I'm texting my fiance. Maybe don't get me golf clubs. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle that sport. It's like high. The highs are so high, but the lows are so low. No. So so here's what, and you know, my girl, she can't understand it neither. Especially when I tell her how much I pay every time to play golf. She, oh, you pay that much to play every time, and you lose all those balls, and you're paying more, and we got bill, blah 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 blah. She was like, you're not even that good. I was like, yeah, not, you know, because of my, my admission. But inevitably, throughout 18 holes, there's one hole that I will do something incredible. And me and my golf buddies, we say it all the time. Like, yep, that right there, that's what's going to keep me coming back. I could, I could hit every tee shot in the woods. I could miss every putt. But I could have that one shot that I just – look like Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson. It was like, yep, I'm going to come back next week and I'm going to do the same thing. So it's, it's, I definitely, and we both say, we definitely got the fever. Um, I, I wish I would have picked it up a little bit when I was younger because I probably would have enjoyed it more and I think I would have been better off. I think I actually, I think I actually would have been pretty good because I've been playing for about five, six years now, but, I wish I would have started playing when I was like 12 or 13. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it just wasn't in the cards for me. That That's not what I aspired to play. Um, that's not the sport that I really desired. You know, there wasn't a public, you know, little league of golfers where I grew up. There was football and basketball and baseball, but not golf. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, so you mentioned Lynchburg. I remember being a teenager – in the car my best friend was adam harper he was african-american and i was with him his sister because his sister was going to look at uva in charlottesville and so i was with their parents and me and adam and his sister and we we're going through lynchburg and they were like uh-oh lynchburg they were joking like let's get out of here quickly that's actually how they got that name that is that is how that name came about uh, was was that? And, um, I was afraid of that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 well known. It, it may not be public record, but yeah, it's that's always been the scuttlebutt for as long as I can remember. Is that that's the reason why they named it Lynchburg? Um, there's another town uh, not too far from Lynchburg called Lynch Station. Um, you know, a lot of lot of things so and they probably have plausible deniability if anyone confronts them about that so they probably won't be changing anytime soon and you said you grew up in danville virginia Uh and um uh what was that like growing up what do you remember do you have any early memories as a kid so i say grow up just for sake of argument sorry no not at all i wanted to say hi yeah. I say that growing up out of the sake of argument. So I'm an Air Force brat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we finally settled, because that's where my parents from, and we finally settled, that's where we settled and spent most of my childhood there uh, in, in, in Danville. And so <laughs> so some of the things that I remember being taught about Danville 
Danville's the last capital of the Confederacy. Hmm. Um, you know, the textile and the uh, tobacco. And, Does that mean um, it, it was Richmond and then they changed it to Danville? Um, so when, when Grant came down from Washington, you know, you had uh, General Sherman down in Georgia burning everything all the way through Atlanta, all the way to Savannah. You know, Grant was over in Vicksburg, kind of came back to Washington, uh, and they were coming through. And there was another Union general that, um, well, Appomattox. Mm-hmm. So when Grant and Lee met in Appomattox and they had to battle of Appomattox and Lee surrendered, because uh, keep in mind it's the 1860s. And Appomattox is about 100 miles from Richmond. So imagine somebody getting on a horse. Let's say the horse goes 25 miles an hour. It's going to take that guy four hours to get back to Richmond and say, hey, Lee just surrendered, you know. So Jefferson Davis, who's the Confederate, um, who's the Confederate president, he and his staff got themselves together and they actually follow the train line because there's a there's a railroad that goes from Richmond to Danville. So they follow the railroad and they follow the Danville. And there was a general or a captain in Danville, uh, Sutherland. So they actually settled at his residence there and still conducted uh, the government and government operations from there um, until you know Lee signed the peace treaty. And, and all that stuff because things just moved a little bit slower um, back then. So officially, you know, they set up government there. And I think where, I think where, and, and don't quote me on this, and you know, people are listening to it probably chastising me as far as butchering the Civil War Confederate history. They can Google it. Yeah, they can Google it. Um, but I believe what, the goal was was for Jefferson Davis either to get to Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere around there. He was running from Richmond, and he settled in Danville, and that was kind of about as far as they were able to get before everybody was like, hey, dude, the war's over with. You lost. Um, shit's about to change. <laughs> and that, mm-hmm. that's pretty- but anyway, yes, so Danville's the last capital of the Confederacy. Um, there are a lot of people in that town even today that will remind you of that fact, which, okay, fine. Um, somebody asked me a few weeks ago on Facebook, a um, person posted something that had a Confederate flag. In it. <clears throat> and, you know, we were posting and posting things and all that. Somebody sent me a private message, and this person is from Massachusetts. So they said, uh, I said hey, man, this, you know, Am I being too sensitive or whatever to being offended? Am I should should I be offended by this Confederate flag? Because you don't seem to be offended by it. I'm like, man, I grew up with that shit all my life. It whatever. You know, if that's how you get down, that's to me, that's just a marking of how you think. And so I have to make a choice on, okay, this is the way that this person thinks. And it is what it is. Um, but I regularly grew up seeing that I, I was um, talking with a classmate of mine me and her we were actually in grade school together and graduated high school together too 
<clears throat> she, uh, we were talking about our senior year in high school about the big controversy of kind of racial pride shirts. So again, the era of the nineties, um, the black guys, we had a lot of the African medallions with the red, black, green, um, a lot of red, black, green, you know, fists in the air and guards and all that. <clears throat> and we all wore Malcolm X hats. So the other people who didn't wear Malcolm X hats, they started wearing shirts that said, you wear your ex, I wear mine. I remember that. And your ex was that. So, you know, that kind of spilled over into uh, some parking lot scuffles and, you know, calling names and doing what high schoolers do. So our principal said, nobody could wear Confederate stuff. Nobody could wear pro-Africa Malcolm X stuff. We're just going to keep it neutral. Which I think, <clears throat> being an adult now, I think it was a good move. I think it's the best thing you could do. But back then, it pissed me off because it's like you're saying that I can't wear what I want to wear. You're trying to control me. Yada, yada, yada. But anyway, I say that to say that the point of, you know, the sheer image of the Confederate flag doesn't offend me at all. It is offensive when you look at the meaning behind the flag. But just the simple display of the flag, to me, tells me I know exactly where your head is at. Like, you are wearing that proud, and I know exactly what your mindset is. I could be wrong. I'll admit that. I could be absolutely wrong. But experience has shown me that I'm not wrong because I grew up around this all the time and I have a lot more experience seeing Confederate flags than probably half of the people in this country. Uh, you go to my hometown today, right now, at this very moment, along the major highway, there are two places where you can see a giant Confederate flag that's 100 foot long that is flying in the air with spotlights on it and everything. So, Okay, you know. It is what it is. Um, it is what it is. Just my thing is, is you can fly it all you want to, as long as you don't fly it in my face. Fine, whatever. Um, so, yeah. So growing up in Danville was divided. Still kind of divided. Um, <clears throat> Martin Luther King said that the worst place that he marched at was in Danville, Virginia. We got the most hate. Mm. Um, and it's Danville was a community that was pretty bustling and vibrant. And in school, I, uh, you know, we being in Virginia, you had to, you know, you had Virginia history in school. Mm. You know, Danville was the ninth largest city in the state. You got Norfolk, Richmond, Alexandria, Arlington, uh, Chesapeake, you know, all those other cities and whatever. And then, you know, Lynchburg, Roanoke, Danville. And so Danville was, was pretty big. But, you know, to see kind of the dissension amongst the citizens and then the loss of jobs and just the loss of, 
you have the loss of jobs and the loss of income. And then you kind of throw on top of it some of the social economic problems that plague neighborhoods like um, the crack epidemic. You know, um, you see that just go through and just tear a whole neighborhood apart. Uh, you, you see things like you know, what's now the opioid epidemic. Um, tear a completely different neighborhood apart. The one that got tore up by crack is still messed up and it still tore up. But now you got a completely different neighborhood. And now you're going and you're seeing neighborhoods that aren't quite as tore up, but still are being in the effects. So, you know, you have all that. And I, and I often have talks with my mother. She asked me every so often. She doesn't ask me as much anymore. But she asked me every so often, you ever think about moving back home? Like, no, I don't. I don't, I don't move back home. There's not anything from me. And, and here's the thing, probably I'm in a position in life and a position professionally that if I wanted to move back home to be closer to my parents and to provide for my grandparents and all that, I could and still do my current job. I just don't want to. One, because I love, I love living in Louisville. I love the city. I love the history. I love the people. We have our problems just like everybody else. We have our dissension just like everybody else. But I love it here. And often what you hear from people outside uh, that come here is, is how much the residents appreciate and know about the history of the city. You know, like they can tell you why the parkway system is the way that they are and they're all connected. They can tell you um about the horse races and, and all that. So I, I, I love it here for that. That's been kind of lost in Danville and it started to kind of start being lost back when I was coming up in school. Um, so I really, I really kind of, my heart kind of hurts for to, cause I keep up with the local news and I keep up with everything and, you know, I kind of see, you know, anybody that I grew up with is doing anything. who's getting married and all that. But I really kind of, my heart hurts to see the, uh, just to kind of see the despair, I guess. Because when I went to school, you did one of three things. You graduated school, you found a job, and you worked. You joined the military. Or you went to college. That's that's the three options. And so now those three options are join the military. And when you join the military, wherever you end up, you end up. Um, go to college. Wherever you end up, you end up. And you go find a job in another city. <laughs> you know, you don't find a job here. You find a job in another city somewhere. And you move and you start a family somewhere else. So, you know, you have the old people dying off. You have the young people that are leaving and not coming back home. So it's no wonder that the trend of my hometown has started to slide. So, you know, you go from 1990 to 2000 to 2010. I'm pretty sure when the 2020 census comes out, you're going to see even more of a decline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my question to my folks is, is, and of course, their retirement age 
college and all that is just like if y'all ever thought about relocating somewhere, I would, I would like to see them relocate to a different place. But, I mean, they're happy. They're happy. They have a house that's paid off. They have, you know, things, all their families around there. And if that's where they are, that's the way they are. Just because it's not my choice doesn't mean that it's not the choice for them. Um, and I still have some friends there in school that I went to school with that still live there. And, and they have kids and they're raising their kids there. And, uh, okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it just it just wasn't for me because it lost or uh, what I remember when I was a kid. And I could be naive because I was a kid, you know? Uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty much the, the history of, of, of Danville, Virginia, and, and, and growing up in, in there. And, yeah, it's, 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 it's disheartening, but I'm always excited to go back home. Like it's, it's like I go back home and, tell Lindsay and she's like, I'm going to go back home and I hope I see this person. I hope I see that person. And I have this kind of little kid kind of butterflies in the stomach excitement. And then I get there and I'm there for about eight hours. I'm like, yeah, I remember why I moved away. I'm ready to go back. to <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've gone over an hour. I wanted to ask you, yeah, go ahead. We're fine. I wanted to ask you, but I mean, we could talk about this for 10 hours, just like, um, with the whole George Floyd thing. So let me say this as far as, and I'm, and I'm not speaking for anybody, I'm only speaking for myself when it comes to George Floyd. The way he was treated by the police officer does not exude the behavior of somebody that I think took an oath to protect and serve. Okay. Um, regardless of his past history, regardless of how he may have been acting today or that day, um, police officers are trained to handle, and in most police departments call it a crisis intervention. Okay. So, Nobody's going to be happy getting handcuffs slapped on. I don't know a person that is just like cheerfully going to go. That's what they get trained for in the academy. So for George Floyd to kind of act the way that he's acting, he didn't seem in any of the videos that I've seen to be uh, defiantly resisting arrest, but he was mouthing off. He was probably being a little uh, difficult still didn't justify the way he was treated and it definitely didn't justify the death. Um, the protest on his behalf and in his memory are admirable and uh, the protests are justified. The violence and the looting and the opportunity for elements to come in to create dissension and create chaos is absolutely positively wrong. And it doesn't need to happen. And it shouldn't happen um, because it gives the entire cause a bad name. Um, but we have something different going on here in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Brianna Taylor. Yeah. 
Yes. And <clears throat> to kind of recap, just in case if people aren't entirely familiar with the Breonna Taylor case, um, Louisville Metro Police Department secured a no-knock warrant to go and search the resident of Miss Taylor who lived in an apartment complex. So they secured this warrant. Judge signed off on this warrant based on the fact of suspicious activity and possible um, narcotics selling. And the postmaster general suggested that maybe some suspicious, suspicious packages were dropped off at this address. Okay. So the police go one o'clock in the morning, Sunday night, they go, they kick the door. Um, neighbor says they didn't hear the police announce themselves. Police say they did. Okay, fine, whatever. No body cameras because this is a special mobile task force. They don't have body cameras. Um, so they kick the door in. Uh, Miss Taylor's boyfriend, who also lived at the residence, heard the door getting kicked in, grabbed his legal firearm, shot one shot towards the intruder, and uh, was returned 22 shots by the incoming uh, police officer. Eight of those shots went into Miss Taylor. She died. Uh, the police didn't call 911. The boyfriend did. So the boyfriend called 911 and shot, still not knowing who these plainclothes undercover officers are because they haven't identified themselves yet. 911 tapes on, you can listen to. So Miss Taylor dies. Uh, she was working as a um, medical technician at a healthcare facility um, right at the height or the beginning of the COVID-19. So she had been working a lot because people were getting sick and things of that sort. Uh, so her boyfriend gets locked up, gets charged with attempted murder, assault of a police officer, um, unlawful use of a firearm, yada, yada. He sat in jail, and the local news, you didn't hear about it. Keep in mind, all we're hearing is COVID-19, 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 so you didn't hear about it. And um, this activist, Sean King, Mm -hmm. actually made a point of it on a post and called out the mayor and the governor. And I personally remember seeing this, and I'm just telling Lindsay, I was like, I live in Louisville, and I, and I actually wrote on the post and said, I live in Louisville. I didn't even hear about this. So I just went back and just Googled everything, and I found a couple of small articles. You have police, uh, you know, police uh, kills woman in a drug raid. Real subtle, uh, real small written article, not a lot of words, not a lot of description. So that was about a month after it happened that Sean King brought it to light. So people starting to ask questions, start asking, starting to ask questions of the the mayor, starting to ask questions of the chief of police, and then the George Floyd thing happens. No, the Ahmad Aubrey mm. thing. It's hard to keep then track. George, then the George Floyd thing happened a week later. So people are already on edge. And they, you look on the news, you see what happens in Georgia, and you look on the news, and you see this blatant. Um, I, I don't think there there are very few people on this planet that 
do not think that was police brutality. I mean, the overwhelming majority uh, agree on all sides of the table that, yep, that was wrong with a cop to respond. So, you know, that started and it started. Wait, you mean the, the civilians? Yeah, the civilians are. So, um, so that caused a lot of, um, dissension and anger and frustration and all that around here on top of everything else. So then we started to see the protest and as the protest kind of started to increase in Minnesota, they were doing the same thing here to where we have the national guard and they're shooting tear gas and they're breaking the All the, all the other stuff that's going on. Now it's settled back down kind of into marches and vigils now, which it seems to be in most other, and that's just the cycle. Like you can't sustain that level of chaos. Nobody can. You just, you just can't do it because eventually a couple of things going to happen. One, you're going to destroy everything around you or two, so you're going to bring the big dogs in and really try to quell it down. And, and luckily it didn't get to any one of those places. Um, so what it's done for me is it's <clears throat> had me, I've not been very vocal on it on Facebook, but I've voiced some of my opinions more. I usually stay out of political uh, current affair debates or anything. I uh, just don't think social media is the place for that. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk to me about it, we could talk about it over a cup of coffee. We could talk about it over Zoom. But to be on, on social media is just not the place for that. Um, but I've been making some posts and so some people... I think a lot of people have that don't normally... Right. <clears throat> so some people reached out to me and we've had some conversations, you know, just what do race relations look like? What do what can I do as a white person? What should black people do and all that? And for the most part, and again, this is my opinion, but mostly what my answer back to people that aren't black, what can I do? Um, my answer to them is to be supportive if you, and in whatever way possible and hold your folks accountable, man. You know, like I can't, there are things that happen and things that are said in a room full of people. If I'm not there, that's different than what's being said in a room full of people if I'm there. But if the people that are in both of those rooms start holding those folks accountable and say, hey, man, that's, you know, it's not cool. Uh, I don't really vibe that way. Um, I don't really feel that way. I disagree with you. Um, you know, if you're going to act that way, like I'm just not going to participate in your life. Uh, you know, those, those kind of things, it may cause people to really, really take a look at their behavior. Um, I personally, honestly could, could care less about the black lives matter. All lives matter debate. I think it's juvenile. I really do. Um, personally I don't think it's a debate like like it's like a like a like it's not a 
like to me, it's like rebuttal. It seems like uh, okay, so like that the meme where it's the guy says, "Ow, my leg is hurt. Please go get help," and the other person says, "All legs matter. What about my legs?" Yeah. Or uh, my my house is on fire. We need to put out the fire. Oh no, all houses matter. Like to me, like the term "all lives matter" would include black lives. So you you agree? If you say all lives matter, you're including black lives, right? So yeah, yeah and and you know, the, and of course, flip side of that is is like, well, black lives can't matter, you know. If black lives matter, then all lives matter. Why does it have to be black? And it it it, it just seems like it just seems like a, a just a back and forth, really. Because if you really look at it, both of them and Black Lives Matter does have more of a leg to stand on because there's actually an agenda that it stemmed from. You know, like there's, there's a problem. They're trying to address a problem. Right. They're trying to address a problem. Um, people have taken it way past that problem. And now they've started applying that same uh, rationale to other problems. Like I often hear when people say, well, all lives matter. Yeah, but cops aren't killing everybody. They're killing black people. Well, cops rough up white people too. Okay, well. Are killing you should be just as angry, or they'll say, or you're right, or they'll say, Why don't you care when black people are killing black people in the south side of Chicago? Yeah. It's like, in my head, I'm like, Why are you arguing? Like, why do you keep yeah. coming, coming with another thing? Like, like, uh, that comedian who was like, Can we just say they matter? Is that too strong of a statement to say they matter? And 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 I think that when some people hear black lives matter, they hear black only black. And that's not what it is. Or they're doing it, or or they're just doing it on purpose. Right, or, or, or they're doing it on purpose. But on the flip side of it, when a person hears all lives matter, what they hear is all lives matter except black people. You know, so it, there's so there's 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 so much that that can be interpreted from that, and that's why I said in the beginning, like I can really care less about the volley back and forth yeah it's silly it's silly like everything these days more than ever is divided into two sides for whatever reason i guess uh like the um i've been watching podcasts and stuff probably too much and just talking about like how the cable media gets more viewers and ratings and clicks if you and i'm talking about all the cable news outlets if you divide everyone into two sides and then the powers that be, they they're just fine. If if all the if everyone's fighting each other, then the corporations and the politicians and the wealthiest people can just sit back and say, "Yeah, fight each other." Yeah, I, I you know I can't remember a time in recent history or in my history that I could remember where there was a blatant bias in. The news media, you know, I'm sure it's probably always been there. I just really never paid attention to it. But it is like you can turn to be like, oh, yeah, those folks are definitely on this side. Oh, 
those folks are definitely on this side. And the way that everything is reported and it's just like, I just want to know what's going on. Yeah. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, if, if I, I, I just want to know what's going on. If there's a protest in Minnesota, tell me, Hey, there's a protest in Minnesota. This is why they're protesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Like, I don't want to spend. No, we have people shouting at each other and everyone gets two minutes. Now I want to recommend a podcast. Um, I saw these two people on Joe Rogan's podcast. Their names are Crystal Ball and Sagar, and one of them is conservative and one of them is liberal. But they have a podcast called Rising, which I haven't even listened to their podcast. I've only heard them on Joe Rogan. But it was refreshing because they spoke for almost three hours, so they had in-depth conversations. And the, the conservative guy would concede when the conservatives were screwing up, and the liberal would concede when the liberals were screwing up. And it was, and they disagreed without being disagreeable. And they basically talked about what we're discussing right now, how it's sort of like um, left versus right, red versus blue, everyone yelling at each other, when really a lot of us have a lot more in common than we do apart, than we yeah. differ. Yeah, we do. And I'm looking up the podcast while you're talking. Oh, cool. It's like that SNL sketch where they had the Trump supporter on the African American game show, and they were they were all agreeing on the same answers. Yeah, yeah. Didn't Tom Hanks play that? Before, I, I, I think. think they did it more than once. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, if I've opened up a can of worms that we could talk about this for twelve hours, and and, and I'll, I'll just speak a couple. And I want to talk about it. I would love to have you back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my fault for bringing it up at the end. No, you're fine. You're you're fine. But you know when when I look at my political axis per se, I am in the middle. I'm in the middle. I've always been in the middle. It's like, yeah, I I can't say that I'm all the way right. And I can't say that I'm all the way left. I can see the good and the bad in both sides. And the few personality tests that I've, I've taken, uh, this is me talk, telling you how special I am, by the way. Okay. <laughs> few personality tests that I've taken have always pegged me as, I think the last one described me as an ultimate realist. And so, and I've always been that way. It's like, I'm not really the first one to talk because I want to assess the situation first and then calculate and really figure out what's going on and try not to go off of raw emotion. Yes, there are things that are getting me mad. Yes, there are things that make me sad or happy and all that. I'm a human being, you know, I have emotions. But <clears throat> to kind of voice those things and then create a, uh, um, basically create a, a line of core values and, and morals and stuff. I really have to gather all the facts first before I just condemn the guy, you know, it's this, all that. And I don't know if a lot of people can do that. Because mm-hmm. um, there, you know, there are some things that people want a black or white. We talk about abortion. Some people, oh, no, 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 abortion, absolutely no, nope, nope, not at all. Don't, don't even talk to me about 
then there are other people who are like, well, a person should have the liberty to do whatever they want to, and you don't have a right to tell them what to do. Both are valid arguments. Both are absolutely valid arguments. And so what I, how I see all that is, is that, okay, I see the validity and the invalidity on this side and the validity and invalidity on this side, and I have my own happy medium, which I keep out of this podcast for today. Um, but I, I kind of come together and I have my own thought process on that guns or, or immigration, or, you know, some of the things. So I would probably suck as a politician because I couldn't commit to nothing on either side. And I would probably piss both the D's and the R's off. Um, I were to ever be, and I don't ever plan on being because I don't have the temper to be a politician. Um, I'd be cussing some people out on C-SPAN if I was ever a politician. So that's probably why I'm not on. <laughs> that's probably why I'm not one. Um, but I would probably more or less be an independent than anything else because I don't want to be tied to a political party or platform or line. Like I want to be able to free and think for myself. Um, but have some good reasoning and some good sense and not just say, Oh, I believe that it's right now. Oh, it's gotta be right. And that's the way I, you know, there's some facts that gotta come with it. But, uh, and, uh, and, uh, Oh, not to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, just, um, I thought that I had too, was a lot of the, um, a lot of the, like all lives matter, black lives matter, blue lives matter, arguing back and forth. Um, a lot of that sometimes can just come from ignorance and I don't mean ignorance in a negative way. I mean like different parts of the country, like there's, there's different parts of the country where people barely come in contact with African American people or there's parts of the country where, you know, African Americans might not come across very many white people and, I wouldn't even say it's ignorance. I would probably say it's influence. You know, it's like your surroundings, your environment. Mm -hmm. I knew a guy in the Navy when I was in the Navy. He was from uh, Philadelphia. He was from South Philly. Um, Never drove a car in his life. Um, Never left Philadelphia in his life until he came to boot camp. Never been on an airplane. Didn't have a driver's license because he took. And he very rarely, you know, he very often said the only time that I ever seen white people was when I went to downtown Philly. And he's like, on the flip side, I was also in the Navy with a guy was from Idaho. And he said the first black person that he's seen in real life was when he stepped off the plane boot camp. Like he had never seen a black person before in so there's like two totally separate um, cultures. Mm-hmm. Really, that's what we're talking about is cultures. You have two totally separate cultures, and both of them are right because that's what they were influenced by, and that's what their environment was, and that's how the you know that's how the, that's how they were raised. But you know there are some commonalities amongst Americans. You know, I think that we have those September 12th moments. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it don't matter. 
you know, we, we, we got to come together. And I think that's what makes us great is, is it's like having a brother or a you know, sibling or something. And you guys just fight all the time over everything. I never had any brothers or sisters, so I, I can only imagine. Um, but you, but I've seen it happen plenty of times. You fight over everything. But if somebody tried to do something to either one of y'all, you guys will come together and it's almost natural. Um, and I think that's the way Americans are. Mm. I think that's the way we are. We bicker amongst each other and we talk amongst each other. But – uh, hopefully it doesn't have to be a September 12th moment for us to kind of realize that we're all one and the same. Um, hopefully we can figure it out ourselves. Um, we can talk about leadership. We can talk about the presidency. We can talk about, you know, uh, community activists. We can talk about ringleaders and, and all that stuff. But really, you know, you, you just have human nature and, when it boils down to it, you know, I care about what happens to my neighbor and I hope that my neighbor cares about what happens to me, regardless if he votes one way and I vote the other way, or if he's all lives matter and I'm black lives matter or, or, or whatever. If I look over there and I see his house is burning, I'm going to try to help him. And I hope that he's going to try to help me too, which I'm pretty sure he will. Um, you know, I think that's in all of our spirit. Uh, but it just doesn't come out, definitely doesn't come out on social media. It doesn't come out through the news media. It doesn't come out in any of that stuff, man. But I believe that it's there. Um, I've been just like yourself. I've been to numerous parts of this country. And some of the stuff that I've seen on TV and the stuff that I've experienced in my own, they haven't always matched up. Like, hold on, man. this person's supposed to hate me. He doesn't. These people are supposed to rob me. And they didn't. You know, these people are supposed to spit at me and kick at me. And they welcomed me. You know, so what I'm seeing are, and, and, and what's actually happening are two different things. You know, where's the truth and, and, and all that? So, I don't know. We got a long way to go, um, but I think we'll be all right. I really honestly think is people are just mad because they've been pent up in the house for two and a half damn months. You know? And we just get out and just act as a fool. <laughs> and, and I'm not minimizing what happened in any of those cases, the controversial cases that we're talking. I'm, I'm just saying that we were probably, we were already hypersensitive because we've been locked in the house for two and a half months for the first time in mostly all of our lives. I've never been quarantined before. I'm sure you haven't, you know, and there's 330 million other people who haven't as well. So how the hell are you supposed to act when you come out from being quarantined for two and a half months? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy. It's just crazy just to think about the whole flipping world. Stayed in the house for two and a half months. So we didn't get a virus, you know? That's still out there. That's still present. Yeah. And whether you believe it's a hoax or whether you believe we overreacted or underreacted or whatever, um, I know this much. 
it would have been a lot better off. It would have been a lot worse off if we did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Whether we overreacted, okay, fine. But I guarantee you, if we didn't react some way, then I think we would be a lot worse off than where we are or where we're going to end up. I agree with that. The hospitals were overrun in certain places. Yeah. This is a historical time um, for many reasons, and it's going to be in the history books, and it's still... It's yeah, still, yeah, it's going to be crazy. It's not even halfway over. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. This year. Yeah, I think about my four-month-old, you know. Uh, she, uh, when she was born, she, she had to go into the NICU um, for about a month. It was right when this COVID stuff was happening. So she, she, she was born. She's in the NICU for a month. She comes out of the NICU, walks right into a world pandemic, right? So now she's in a world. You got to think what she's seen in her four months of living, even though she doesn't know process it. Um, and then from a worldwide pandemic to where her parents are around her all the time because we didn't go anywhere to now um, – protests and riots, you know, uh, all all this stuff. So, um, yeah, when she gets older and like, you know what, your first four months of existence was wild. It was, it was wild. You you were basically born right in the middle of a historic moment. Um, And you've seen a lot, even though you didn't know what you were looking at. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Well, we got to, we got to keep interacting like this one-on-one yeah. around the country and around the world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it starts, you know, this is, this is where it starts. And, uh, again, we could, we could, um, continue. The I want to have it again and talk more about this and about you being in the military. Oh yeah. I got some stories. I, I got some, definitely some stories on that too. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show, man. What's that? Yeah, I, I said you know we can we we can definitely get into that. I got hella stories um, to do with that. And some of them are pretty relevant even to this day. Mm-hmm. So. And uh, and I really appreciate it because I know you got your hands full. I heard your baby in the background. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I appreciate it. She's getting ready to go to sleep. It's bedtime, and she's got a routine. And babies are routine. And, We'll be traveling to Houston in a couple weeks, um, and hopefully sometime next month we'll be going to Virginia to see my parents. And uh, isn't it Houston? I thought it was Houston. <laughs> Maybe I'll go down there and say Houston. <laughs> see, see, see what happens. You're not from here, are you? Yeah. yeah so, uh, right, it was it was really great um, getting to know you a little better. Yeah, man, I appreciate you asking me, and uh, uh, definitely hit me up. We'll we'll schedule the next time. You uh, be safe down there and uh, good old Nashville. And uh, when are you going back? When, when you so going I'm back? in I'm in Nashville right now, and then because my fiance is a maid of honor in a, a wedding on Saturday, it's going to be like 10, 10 people at a courthouse, and her folks live in Nashville. And then we're going back to my mom's in Little Washington, Virginia. My stepdad actually is um, from Portsmouth, Virginia. He grew up yeah. with no electricity and dirt floors in 1941. Um, 
so anyway, they just have more room. So, and uh, neither of us is needed in LA for the foreseeable future physically. So we're just um, batting down the hatches in uh, in the mountains uh, for the time being. Yeah. Did you get a new agent? I did yesterday Good. on my birthday. Good. I did. Yeah. Good. I mean, I mean, the thought of getting a new agent during all this is ridiculous. Like. There, there aren't really any auditions and the ones that there are, are on camera like and like people I don't know why anyone would be adding clients right now but I guess it is going to start getting ramped back up so I'm just grateful I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth I got a new agent about as as suddenly as I lost my last one so All right. well that's good man I'm happy for you I'm excited to see where that's going to lead you man thanks man appreciate it oh and uh, Balia talked to me yesterday and uh, he told me, I told him that uh, me and you were doing this. So he told me to tell you hi. Um, hey, Balia, shout out. Shout out to Balia. We'll see if he listened for uh, 100 minutes or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. 100 minutes is pretty good. Yeah, very good. We, we, I feel like we, I think it's you, honestly, but maybe it's both of us. We just can get along and just talk forever. Yeah, I'm a talker. I could be, so... She's actually asking me, how much longer are you going to Oh, man. Apologize. Uh, apologize. Blame me. You can blame me. Uh, you're fine. Um, and thank her. Just apprehend, you know, she's just being apprehensive. So when I come in, make sure I'm quiet. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. Shout well, out to Balia. Shout out to Balia, man. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank Same you here. Much. Can't thank you enough. And, uh, hit me up soon. I will. I will. Good luck out there on the open road. Thanks, man. All right, man. Thank you. You too.